and you're there. I'm the only one there, so you don't even have to choose. Um, but so if you, if you, uh, I guess there have been some people questioning that. So uh, that's how you can find the uh, the lectures. I also would like to know how many of you, uh, like me, were at Nancy Guthrie Friday night or Sunday morning, and I want to apologize to each and every one of you who are now thinking, why didn't I sign up for her class? That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, why didn't I sign up for her class? Uh, no, that was, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit. That was, uh, I told Becky that in 16 years, that was the most profound women's event I've attended at Brookside, for me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> now you're going, why didn't I go? Uh, yeah. I don't know. That'd be a good question to see if she's putting it online. Um, I also, if you weren't here last week, you're going to have to kind of get the Reader's Digest version from somebody sitting next to you about the story I told last week. It's okay. This will be recorded, but I'm okay with that because I'm going to be uh, careful in what I say. Uh, because I just have to give you a little addendum to last week's story, which is that I did, um, the day of that event I explained last week, I did ask my husband if he noticed anything different about me, which is really a bad thing. I mean, what? That is just not nice to do to a man, even one who's been married 26 years, you know, because they start going, yeah, uh, I could see the sweat starting to rip. And, and so then I just told him, right? So then a couple days later, I walked up to the kitchen and I'm like, okay, really, seriously, you can't tell any difference? And he said, he's been married 26 years, honey, you always look sexy to me. Yeah, 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 good man, smart man. Um, but then yesterday, okay, I bought new shoes. And yesterday, didn't tell him, bought new shoes. Within 10 seconds, even less than that, of me walking in with these shoes, he goes, did you get new shoes? I'm like, really? The new shoes you noticed, but this? Seriously? He's been married 26 years. He said, yeah, I'm 55. I'm not 25 anymore. But uh, anyway, that's the, that's the addendum to last week's story. Those of you who are going, why are they laughing? Uh, can ask, you can ask me, actually. Uh, do you have any questions as we begin today? You have one. You're just, you don't want to ask it? Whisper it to Cindy. <laughs> oh, there's a lot. What's the today? Yeah. So, Psalm 2 7? Okay. And is it. Um, Let's just do this real fast. Keep going. Uh, so where it says, uh, you are my son today, I have become your father. Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, the word today is used a lot in Hebrews, and it, it generally means um, the time in which we're living. Uh, in this case, uh, it's not a particular time that he became. It's not referring to a time when he became, because obviously he's the eternal son. Um, but <clears throat> I, I probably need to look into this more to give you a fuller answer. Um, but that would probably be something that in the, in the context of the psalm isn't, isn't really important to our understanding. But I'll look into that further, because I know, I know that was discussed in the commentaries, and I know I'm not discussing it today, so... Uh, that requires information I'm not currently in possession of, but I will, 
I, I will look into that for you. Any other questions? None? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for today. Father, I just uh, was listening to a song on the way here, and I would just like to pray for us, essentially the words of those songs. Father, come and make our hearts your home. Come and be everything we are and who we know. Search us through and through till our hearts become a home for you, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're at an important crossroads in the book of, of Hebrews, uh, in the letter, in these three verses, and, and they serve as a transition. When we started out with this letter, the sort of the opening of the letter in the first two chapters, uh, we were told by the author that Jesus is superior to the angels. And then the author told us that Jesus is superior to Moses. And he talked about the faithfulness of Jesus and, and in fact, the faithfulness of Moses as well. And, and that, that's going to kind of come through in what he's talking about today. But mostly this, 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 these three short verses are a transition from exhortation, the exhortation that began uh, with chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 3, where there were just, from, from the chapters, in chapters 3 and 4, there was just this multiplicity, up to 4.13, of exhortations that the author gave us. He said, fix your thoughts on Jesus. He said, do not harden your hearts. He said, hold on to courage and to hope. Encourage one another daily. Hold on firmly to the confidence we have in Christ. Do not be found to have fallen short of God's rest. Just to name a few of them. And he will continue on with some exhortation in these uh, three verses that we're going to read today. But he's trans th these three verses are, are making that transition from that exhortation to exposition, to an explanation of who Jesus is. And that will begin with the first verse of, five, uh, of chapter 5, which we'll uh, go through today, those first 10 verses. And that exposition is going to be about Jesus as our great high priest. Jesus as our great high priest. He mentioned it. He just kind of brought it up. One thing I'd like to point out, though, is when we see that, he mentioned it, didn't give an explanation. We kind of look at that and go, what's that all about? That's not how his original hearers would have responded to that. They totally understood. They had mostly come out of uh, the Jewish faith, and those who didn't understood it, they would have gone, oh, yeah. I mean, they, it would have really piqued their interest. But he kind of teases us with Jesus being our great high priest a couple of times before he gets into the exposition. If um, you didn't have the opportunity to do the lesson this week, I would really encourage you, because I'm not going to spend time on that during the lecture, I would really encourage you, I wrote about sort of the history of the high priest and who the high priest was, and that is essential uh, to the rest. It's kind of like when I was teaching Katie to read, and she was supposed to, like if the word was cat, she was supposed to drag out that vowel sound, cat, but, and, and then say cat, but she would say cat. Cat. And I was like, yeah, that whole drag it out thing, that doesn't really matter. She's getting it. When we got to Ming, we had a problem because she got to the end of Ming and couldn't remember what the word was. So we had to go back and reteach that, that process. So go back if you haven't had the opportunity and, and find out about the high priest. Uh, so this is an exposition that we're entering into that, that leads into the great middle section 
of Hebrews that is really the body of this, this letter sermon, the, the meat of it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to last for nearly six chapters. And it's an exposition on, on Jesus as our great high priest. Six chapters. It must be very important. Now, there is a, there, it starts at 5.1. It goes to uh, Hebrews 10.25. There is a break in there. Uh, for an exhortation, but it is mostly exposition on Jesus as our great high priest. What we have here in these verses, I'm going to read them to you first, but we have the primary message of Hebrews in these three verses. It says, therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. These three verses are a snapshot of Hebrews. They are the cliff's notes. They use something different now of Hebrews. They, they are, if, and in fact... Um, they crystallize the message. If somebody asks you, so you're taking that Hebrews course, what's that all about? Have them read this. Because this is really the thesis statement of the entire sermon. In fact, both scholars that I studied said it would be nearly impossible to overestimate the importance of these verses. They are that key to understanding the whole letter. And so it's where we'll spend the bulk of our time today. Uh, there are three components to these verses. It's, first of all, two exhortations. Um, and then, secondly, the basis for those exhortations. So what those exhortations are based on. And then there's also a motivation at the end. There's a so that, a motivation at the end. So let's begin then with holding firmly to the faith we possess. 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 Uh, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who has, is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So we are to hold firmly to the faith, but he begins here with the word, therefore. And when we see the therefore, we need to figure out what it is Therefore, if we look back, because just before this, the author has given us, no, not that direction, the other direction. Not that direction either, although that was really funny. No, not him. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so he's, he's just given us this warning in uh, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, where he says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him for, to whom we must give an account. So just after he gives this, um, this warning to them that they will stand in judgment before God, he turns and encourages his listeners with these words about drawing near to God and holding firmly to the faith. And he ties them together with this word, therefore. So what then is he basing it on? He's saying, look, you're aware um, 
of the fearful prospect of judgment, you are aware that nothing is hidden from God's eyes to whom we will give an account. So therefore, shouldn't you hold firmly to your faith? If God knows everything, if one day we'll stand before his throne, we need to hold firmly to the confession we profess. In other words, hold fast to the faith. But, but this, this section doesn't just begin with the word therefore. It begins with the words therefore since. So he's not only basing it on what he's just said. He's basing it on what he's about to say. And he gives another basis for holding firmly. Uh, it's uh, it's a, in a more immediate and another basis for that. And so then he says, since we have a great high priest... So since we have this great high priest in Jesus who has been exalted to the right hand of God, that's what it means by has gone through the heavens. He has been exalted to the right hand of God. And because Jesus is not just the exalted son of God, but he is also our great high priest who has entered the most holy place, the heavenly most holy place, the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf then therefore we can hold firmly to the faith we profess. In other words, it is because Jesus is our great high priest that we can hold firmly to the faith. And then he says to hold firmly. Now that means more. Those words mean more than just making a profession. I believe in God. Or even I believe in Jesus. It's even more than walking the aisle, making a decision, or with every, eye, every head bowed and every eye closed, holding up your hand. It's more than that, because those words refer to a commitment. In fact, that exact same word uh, elsewhere in Scripture is translated remain true. So remain true to the faith we profess. It's saying remain fully committed to Jesus. Endure, persevere in your commitment to Christ. You're probably sensing a, a real focus on endurance and perseverance in this book of Hebrews, aren't you? Hold on is on there, in, in there a lot of times. And again, he encourages them. Hold fast to the faith. But it is only because of who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf that we are able to persevere, to endure. But even more than that, we have, I feel like I'm selling Ginzu knives, but wait, there's more. <laughs> we have not just a great high priest, we have a sympathetic high priest, one who shares in our weaknesses. What weaknesses? Was it that Jesus had? Well, that word for weaknesses has, actually has a wide range of meaning. And so it depends on the context. It can mean sickness. Um, it can mean physical weakness. Uh, it can mean moral weakness. Here, what the author likely is referring to is that Jesus shares in our experience of being tempted to sin. Those weaknesses that make temptation difficult to resist. those weaknesses that lead to both temptation and sin. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. So he is able to sympathize with our human condition because he too has been tempted. 
Now, that doesn't mean that he was tempted exactly the way we are tempted. Jesus was never tempted, for example, to be unfaithful to a spouse. He was never tempted to spend more money than, you know, his spouse wanted him to on a pair of shoes. Uh, He's never tempted, uh, you know, in, in specific ways that we are tempted. But the general temptations, those things that underlie the temptations, he faced. Uh, In particular, Jesus' greatest temptation was in the garden when he knew what lay before him and he was tempted to find a way out. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. That was probably his greatest temptation. And don't miss then how relevant this would have been to his original listeners They were tempted to turn and run. They were tempted to find another way, a way that didn't involve suffering and persecution. So they not only have the example of Jesus who was tempted in that exact same way and yet suffered on their behalf, they also have the help of that same Jesus because Jesus is a very present Savior. And he is for us too. He is our present Savior. That word to sympathize means more than just feel what the other is feeling. It connotes an ability to be compassionate to the point of helping. It even means an active help, to be an active help to someone else. Jesus is not aloof. As, as the leaders of Israel often were, as the religious leaders of, of Israel were, were often aloof. He is present in our sufferings. Um, he, he, is, he is close to us in that suffering. He is not removed from our human experience, but he has experienced it himself. He has entered into that suffering, and therefore he understands is compassionate, and is able to help us. Uh, Dr. P.T. O'Brien says that these verses are intended to show Christ is powerful to sympathize with and help us in our whole range of weaknesses. So based on this, um, they who listened to this first time, the first time, and we as well, are encouraged to Draw near to God. Verse 16 says, Let us then, based on that, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us draw near to God. Because we understand that one day we will stand before God, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4, Then, therefore, because Jesus is our great high priest and because he is drawn near to us and can sympathize with our human experience, based on all of this, our author now turns and exhorts us to draw near to God in consistent, confident prayer. You see, Jesus' compassion towards us invites us to greater intimacy with God. And Jesus' role as our great high priest 
makes intimacy with God possible. And so based on those things, our author says, draw near to God. Why? Why are we to draw near to God? So that we may find mercy and grace at the very time we need it the most. That's what is meant by in our time of need. It literally says so that we may find timely aid from God. So therefore, and I love this, this is another example of of how the author of Hebrews is so brilliant. That throne of judgment in verses 12 and 13 is also the throne of grace in verses 14 through 16. It is at one time both a throne of judgment and a throne of grace. This concept of approaching the throne under the Old Covenant and the Old Testament was very different. In fact, only one person could approach the throne. And if you looked at that sketch of the tabernacle, that was the Holy of Holies, the place where God's very presence dwelt. Most people couldn't even go inside the tabernacle. They had to stay in the outer court. Only the priests could go in. And only the high priest, one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, could go behind that curtain into the Holy of Holies. And in fact, he had to wear a cord around his ankle because in case he was struck dead because his sins hadn't been atoned for, his sins hadn't been, they could pull him out because you couldn't go in and get him. Hello? You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) Y'all are going to die. So they, they could just pull him out with the cord. There was no access to God. They had no freedom to draw near. Do you get what this author is saying? Because of Jesus, we cannot only approach the throne of grace, we can approach it confidently. We can approach it consistently because of Jesus. We have access to God and a freedom to approach that the Israelites never did. They never had that, and all because of Jesus. And because of Jesus, we are called to a continual intimacy with God. The the verb tense of this uh, passage is saying, let us constantly approach the throne of grace. We may enter the very presence of God on a continual basis, and we may do so with confidence with boldness. But do we do that? Jesus, ladies, is our only hope. Because unlike the people of the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, we can enter the very presence of God on a continual basis and with great confidence. Think about that for a minute. Unlike the Israelites, we can enter the very presence of God on a continual basis and with great confidence. And that is particularly done through prayer. And yet, I don't know about you, but I don't do that nearly often enough. I don't take advantage of this amazing gift that God has given us to come before him. Not only that, oftentimes, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking this from, from Friday night and Nancy Guthrie, oftentimes our prayers are very shallow. 
please let us be safe. Let nobody die, you know, in this plane right now. And, and please, you know, bless so-and-so and be with so-and-so. And mostly we're asking for what we want. It's, it's like our Christmas list. Um, it's not really very deep. And that was, that was part and parcel of, of my biggest aha moment from Friday night with Nancy Guthrie. She talked about prayer. And I'm just going to be personal with you, and I've really wrestled with whether to share this, mostly because, not because I mind sharing it with you, but with everybody else out there that's going to go to messages and click. Um, But I'm going to go ahead and, and in some terms, talk to you about this. This is a really hard time in my life for a number of reasons, but the main one is that that my my mother-in-law is ill, and I have become her primary caregiver. And I understand that this is what God has called me to at this point in my life. And I have said that to a lot of people. And I have been able to deal with her patiently and lovingly, in part because I love her, but also because I think that's what I'm supposed to do. But I haven't necessarily dealt with it that way when I'm not around her, does that make sense to you? Yeah. Um, but but I've, I know I've been successful in dealing with her that way because she said to me the other day, I hope if you are ever in this position, you have someone like you to take care of you. But I've been quite prayerless, or at least not prayerful, through this process. And what God struck me with on Friday night was this, Amy, you're not only to be praying for Betty, obviously you are, but you should be praying for you in this situation because God uses the trials and the difficulties in our life to conform us to the image of our son. So don't just pray, God, get me out of here before I have to go pick up the kids or so I don't miss the show choir performance. Begin praying, God, Build in me, grow in me, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control through this experience. God, make me more like your son as I walk through this. Lord, give me real joy in this, not fake joy. Lord, give me real patience, not just outward patience, but change me inwardly for real as I walk through this. That not only has changed my perspective, it's changed my life. Because God has a purpose in this for me. It isn't just what he's called me to. He's called me to it for a reason. And so therefore, I need to be praying. God, work that out. Whatever, Don't let me miss it. Whatever that is that you have for me in this situation. Another thing Nancy got through talked about, and actually, I've been saying this for years, made me feel pretty good. Yes, also work humility, Father, uh, in my life through this situation. You know that verse that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your hearts from Psalms? I don't know where. That's how good a Bible teacher I am. Before I was married, and I think this is true of a lot of Christian women, I believe that that meant if I really delight myself in God, he'll bring me a husband, right? That's not what it means. And it really doesn't mean delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you fill in the blank, whatever that is, you know, whatever it is. What it means is that if I'm delighting myself in the Lord, what will be the desire of my heart? God will be the desire of my heart. Jesus will be the desire of my heart. And he'll answer that prayer every time. God, give me more of you. And he will answer that one in spades every single time. This is what Dr. Guthrie says about this passage. 
We, we, like half-starved, rain-soaked strays, run from our source of true help. We fear the throne as a throne of judgment, but doubt it as a throne of grace. No, it is not natural to draw near to God. It is supernatural. And he has called us to himself, away from the natural pulls of the, of, and thoughts of the world. His invitation and promises still stand. Our part is to respond to his call and approach the throne. Our sympathetic high priest has experienced the temptation to bolt and run. He has been with us in our humanness and invites us to be with him at the throne of grace. Therefore, we may approach with unabashed boldness. Let us make the approach today, for we will surely find timely help for whatever we need. Amen. Amen. Ladies, I've come to believe that these are among the most amazing three verses in the Bible. It is a message of hope and help and challenge to me. So now we're going to move on to this whole discourse on uh, Jesus as our, our high priest, as our great high priest. It begins with Hebrews 5.1, and it's going to go through Hebrews 10.25. So that's nearly six chapters. And, and that whole big chunk of Hebrews can be divided up into two sections. The first one goes from Hebrews 5.1 to Hebrews 7.28. And the primary point of this section is to teach us that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek rather than Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother who was the first high priest of Israel. Now, he's kind of, the way he teased us with the high priest and, you know, uh, in, the, in passages without explaining us, he's kind of, um, in Melchizedek I've heard pronounced a number of ways. This is the way I pronounce it. Sorry, I don't know if it's right, but that's how I pronounce it. Um, I actually thought about naming the class, Who the Heck is Melchizedek? But... <laughs> <clears throat> but I didn't. He's teasing us with Melchizedek now. He will explain it uh, further. And so for now, all you really know is that Melchizedek was in, in Genesis, was a priest of God who is only mentioned in three places in the Bible. Uh, so he's, he's a rather obscure priest of God. Um, and then Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, the passage before us now, is like the introduction to that whole big exposition. So we're, we're just going to hit the introduction today. There is a section of exhortation thrown in after the introduction, but we'll talk about that next week. And then the second big portion of this uh, exhortation, or excuse me, exposition on Jesus' high priesthood begins with Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8, 1, and it goes through Hebrews 10, 25. And the main point of that big chunk is the superiority of Jesus' offering, of both Jesus' offering and of the new covenant that began with Jesus. So let's look at the first four verses of Hebrews 5. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron, the first high priest, was called by God. So there are four general principles, four main general principles of the Aaronic priesthood, of, of the priesthood began, that began with Aaron. 
that are given here. In verse 1, we find that the high priest originates from among the people. He comes from among the people. In the um, first and second verses, we learn that the high priest represents the people in matters related to God. Particularly, especially, through offering gifts and sacrifices. In verses 2 and 3, we learn that the priest's weaknesses allow him to deal gently with the people. But it also requires that sacrifices be made to pay for his own sins. And then both in verses 1 and 4, we learn that God is the one who both calls and appoints the high priest. So let's look at each of those in just a little more detail. First, representing the people. The high priest represents, or excuse me, not. He's taken from among the people. The high priest is taken from among the people. This actually is uh, almost a quote from Exodus 28, where God says to Moses, get Aaron, take him from among the people. Um, and so the, 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 the high priest was taken from among the people. He was not an, uh, an outsider. And he was able to identify with his people because he lived among them. Jesus, too, dwelt among his people. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh. So this is speaking of Jesus, his incarnation. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, that says, he pitched his tent alongside ours. He chose to do that. Jesus lived among his people, just as any high priest does. And that is what allowed him to accomplish something on our behalf. Secondly, the high priest represents the people, particularly in offering sacrifices um, and, and gifts to God. Uh, and even that sacrifice, by the way, the Old Testament tell us, was to be taken from among the people. The lamb, the bull, whatever it was, was to be taken from among the people. And Jesus, of course, was our full and final sacrifice. Trust me, he will go into great detail on this. But he was our full and final sacrifice. And he was a sacrifice that was taken. He was the Lamb of God who was taken from among the people. Truly, it would be getting ahead of our author for me to go into any more detail than that. Uh, he's going to spend six chapters uh, on it. But uh, the, uh, Jesus also fulfills that qualification of a high priest. Thirdly, the high priest offered sacrifices for himself and his household. That word for because he was subject to weakness, that word is, is the weird P word there, parikimai, and it means he was surrounded by weakness. It means to be surrounded by something. So the high priest was surrounded by, he was closed in by his own weaknesses, his own sinfulness. Jesus, on the other hand, was the sinless, perfect Son of God, the perfect sacrifice, which is one reason why he was able to be the full and final sacrifice. And then finally, the high priest was called by God. He did not sign up for this himself. He was called by God, and therefore his position came from a source of divine authority, not human authority, but divine authority. 
And Jesus, too, was appointed by God, as we are about to see. So Jesus perfectly fulfills all the qualifications required of any high priest. But he is so much more than that, a theme that the author will continue to develop. So Jesus was appointed as our great high priest, and we read about that in verses 5 and 6. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the, the author used here what we've talked about before, verbal analogy, where he takes um, a, a word that is the same in one place and in another and ties those two together. Uh, and the only way that this makes sense is if the author believed that God communicates himself consistently and systematically through, through Old Testament scripture. Because then you can take this that's here and this that's here and they're related to one another. And the way these two passages, these two psalms, these two verses from two different psalms are related to one another is that they are both messianic psalms where God makes a pronouncement to Jesus. In the first one, the pronouncement, this is taken from Psalm 2-7, the pronouncement is God said to Jesus, you are my son, today I have become your father. The author has used this very verse before when he was proving to us that Jesus was the unique and exalted Son of God. And then the second pronouncement found in uh, Psalm 110, verse 4 is, and he says, you are a priest forever. You, Jesus, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews has used this psalm before. This is the first time that we've seen this verse. This is the second place besides Genesis where Melchizedek is mentioned. The third is Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews. Um, and so what, what he is telling us here by telling us that, that Jesus is a priest forever in the, um, in the order of Melchizedek, God is saying and the author is saying that the exalted incarnate son of God, chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews, is the same one who God appointed to be a new and unique high priest. So he's tying together Jesus as the exalted son and Jesus is the great high priest. But Jesus' path to that sonship was a path of suffering. That path to being our high priest was a path of suffering. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be, a, be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus' path to appointment as our great high priest was a path of suffering, of obedience, and endurance. And our author here conveys that in, in what Guthrie calls stark, compelling images. And what is being alluded to here primarily, and I alluded to it earlier, is Jesus' anguished prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died. And let's just, let's just read that, or part of it. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. 
He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell to his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. He came back and found them sleeping again. Um, but this, is, this anguished prayer of Jesus is, is so compelling. Father, if there's any other way, you know how I know that there's no other way to God? Because God would have taken it. The answer was there is no other way. And, and Jesus was deeply distressed. In fact, we find, I think, in Luke, it tells us that, that Jesus dropped sweat drops of blood as he prayed. And, and in situations of severe stress, it has been medically found that that happens. He was, his soul was troubled to the point of death about what lied before him. And he was even tempted to take another path. But he didn't. Jesus submitted to his Father's will. He relinquished his rights and surrendered to God's will. And oh, the difference that has made for us. This must have moved the original hearers tremendously, but it may have even shamed them for their own lack of faith. And in truth, it both moves and shames me as well. Now, what does it mean that Jesus learned obedience? Because, hello, wasn't he already obedient? Wasn't he perfect? Yes, he was. What it doesn't mean is that he had somehow been disobedient before this, like God was saying, I'll teach you to be obedient. No, no. He was obedient. He was sinless. They've, we've already been told that. What it does mean is that Jesus said yes to the Father's will for him. That he fulfilled his calling completely, he walked the path to which he was called to the very end, and he did so with complete obedience to his Father. So what does it mean once made perfect? Wasn't he perfect already? Yes, he was. That word perfect is this, word, this Greek word teleos, and we've seen it before, and we will see it again. It more literally means made whole or made complete. Um, and so what it means is that Jesus completed his calling as our great high priest perfectly. He did it completely. He accomplished the mission God sent him to do perfectly, completely. He walked the path to the very end. One scholar put it this way, he said, he drank the full measure of the experience that was needed in order to come before the throne with a sacrifice with which our sins could be addressed. 
So then in verses 9 and 10, we're told what the result was of Jesus' obedience. And the result was he became the source of eternal salvation. And then it tells us for those who obey. What does that mean? That means for those who respond in faith to him. Which means they have responded in obedience to God by responding in faith. So here's the point of this, this introduction to these, these six chapters on this exposition of Jesus as our great high priest. In a nutshell, this introduction shifts attention to the new topic of high priesthood. It anchors the topic as applied to Christ in divine decree and reflects on it eloquently in light of both the Psalms material and the gospel narrative. Quite an accomplishment in only 10 verses. So let's, uh, let's end today because I want to talk a little bit about what the path of suffering means for us. Ladies, if you're young enough, and I don't know if anyone is here in life, hear me when I say this, storms will come in your life. If you don't know that yet, you just haven't lived long enough, but storms will come. And the Bible has much to say about how we live and the help we have in the middle of that storm. But the time to learn it is before the storm hits. Because if you wait until the storm hits, it's gonna, there's going to be trouble. The best time to learn about God's faithfulness in the storm is before it hits. Because when the storm hits, we had better know where our sure port is. We had better know what our anchor is. And I'll give you the cliff notes now. Ladies, Jesus is our only hope. He is our anchor. And in fact, these verses that we've looked at today show us that recognizing that God brought Jesus out of suffering and into glory is our, is our hope and is our promise that one day, one day we too will be brought out of suffering and into glory. Just real briefly, let me tell you three things that the Bible teaches us about suffering. Three purposes that God has in suffering. The first one is that suffering produces spiritual maturity. In us. None of us wants to sign up for Suffering 101. None of us says, yeah, give me that one. Or, or worse yet, Suffering 901, the one that includes one of our children or more you know, of our children, that's, that's, that's even worse. But I have to tell you that the people whose faith I admire most are people who have come through deep waters of suffering and have been able to attest to the faithfulness of God through that. Suffering is often how God conforms us to the image of his son. Secondly, the Bible tells us that God is sovereign and he has a purpose for the suffering in our lives. And this is really important to know before the storm. We may not see that purpose, but we can believe on faith that God is sovereign and he is working out his goodwill in our lives through it. And then thirdly, we have a Savior who understands. Jesus has been there, done that. In fact, he intentionally signed up for suffering one million and one on our behalf. He relinquished his will to the Father, to the Father's will for him, and he is both our guide on this path as well as the path, the way to God. 
God is calling us similarly to relinquish our wills to his will for us. And it is a matter of daily praying, God, not my will, but thine be done. Ladies, that demands spiritual maturity of us. Without spiritual maturity, that is not a prayer. That's not a prayer we naturally pray, for sure. But I am convinced it is, in fact, the only path to true joy, true peace, and true meaning in our lives. Whether storms are on the horizon or that they're at our front door, that is the path. Ladies, Jesus is our only hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the hope we have in Christ. Thank you so much, Father, that even the path of suffering that we face, we do not face alone. Jesus has already faced it for us. May we hold firm, hold fast to him as we endure the sufferings, the trials, and even the good things in life. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies.